Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In January of 1838, the U.S. Army felt they had the Seminole clearly on the run were not pressing them hard against the inhospitable Everglades. Surely, the Army felt, the Seminole would surrender before descending into that Netherland region. The Army sent out a probe to find them in the vicinity of the Jupiter Inlet and Loxahatchee River on the east side of the Florida Peninsula. Two battles soon raged, the U.S. Army being the force worse for the wear. They found Seminole, but failed to subdue and capture them. The Army would not be deterred, however, and despite the disappointing two battles, the Army was still in the war. The battles themselves saw combined warfare with a joint Army-Navy expedition, and it saw a civilian contractor with a West Point pedigree take charge to save the day. It was a strange outcome, one where General Jessup declared the war was over based on these two battles and the outcome. Here to describe the significance of these two battles in depth, is Glenn Bakels. He is a member of the Loxahatchee Battlefield Preservationists. He manages their social media accounts and he's a battlefield tour guide at the park. Glenn Bakels, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you for the opportunity to talk a little bit about the Loxahatchee River Battlefield and the Battlefield Park. It's quite an opportunity. Thank you very much. Glenn, catch us up on what's going on around the Loxahatchee River region in early 1838. Okay, well, the first battle on January 15, 1838, was primarily a naval command. However, it did have a small contingent of Army artillerymen, 25 to be exact, under a command of a Lieutenant Fowler. Now, this command was tasked by General Jessup to search for the Seminoles in the area of the Loxahatchee River. Powell had actually seen the Seminoles in the area some time before moving along the river, so they had a good idea that they were there. Which Powell was this? Lieutenant Levin M. Powell of the United States Navy had a a force of approximately 96 men, sailors and soldiers, that were ordered to the Loxahatchee River in search of the Seminole Indians. The Army pressed but did not break the Seminoles at the Battle of Okeechobee. Several weeks later, what made this operation at the Loxahatchee River so important to the Army? felt that they had the Seminoles after the Battle of Okeechobee on Christmas Day in 1837, trapped against the Everglades, and they felt that this was their opportunity to bring the war to a close once and for all, remove the Seminoles, and of course, return those that were slaves to the southern plantations. Most of our listeners, if they know anything, they know that there were two battles of the Loxahatchee River, but that's not actually how they're considered by the Army. Tell us why. Well, this actually happens at Loxahatchee River battlefield park. The name is a little misleading because the official name of the battle is the Battle of Jupiter Inlet. We refer to it as Powell's Battle here quite often, so people aren't really familiar with Jupiter Inlet Battle. Um, However, it's at the same place as the Jessup Battle nine days later. For simplicity, we'll just say the first battle of the Loxahatchee River, or the first battle of Loxahatchee. Regardless, what happened? What happened on the 15th is the Naval Command under Powell lands at a place that we now call point. It's a peninsula in the Loxahatchee River. They land at that point and they move five miles inland with the help of a Seminole woman who to history, all we know is by name is 
the old squaw. She was taken prisoner by the troops when they landed at their landing point and forced to lead them to the Seminole camps five miles inland. Okay, pick up the narrative from there. All right. Well, they get in the area of the Loxahatchee River, about where they are engaged. The Seminoles are under the command of sub-chiefs Halleck Hedjo and Tuskegee. They go out to meet the command, and what they do at battles is they announce their presence by opening up on the fire. And what they do at this particular point is they begin to fall back. Uh, they fall back, according to some estimates, as far as 800 yards through dense and changing terrain until they come to a cypress hammock. Now, this cypress hammock is located over where, if, if you've ever been to the battlefield before, you see the big stone bridge crossing the river there. That would have been a muddy slough at the time. That is not the river that they're fighting over. So their intention is to get across that muddy slough and into the South Seminole village. And this is where the Seminoles really let them have it, begin to surround them, shoot down and wound all the officers, including their surgeon who was killed. Okay, who won? Well, as far as the outcome of this first battle, it was a sound win for the Seminole forces at Loxahatchee that day. They drove the sailors and the soldiers from the battlefield in a five-mile running battle with nearly 50% casualties. At the end of the day, they had five killed and 23 wounded. Command only numbered about 96 soldiers and sailors at the onset. 30 were left to guard the boat, so that only leaves about 66 to come in and fight the battle. We're looking at about 50% casualties at this point and there's a long running battle back to the boats and this is where a route could have become an annihilation but for the quick thinking and action of a civilian in the rear guard element a man may have been completely wiped out to the man if it wasn't the presence for a future civil war general by the name of joseph eggleston johnson who in civilian clothes takes command of the u.s artillery men that were present at that battle and fights a rear guard action in order for the sailors to remove their wounded and make it back to the boats as they're casting off from their landing point they are under a great deal of fire from the seminoles the seminoles claim that they would have got every one of them if it wasn't for the cover of darkness they were fighting right up until the time they cast off from Pannock Point or the future location of Fort Jupiter. It's said that Joseph Eggleston Johnson had seven bullet holes through his clothing. None touched him. One passed through his hat so close to his scalp that it actually burned it. There were a lot of close calls out there. They were lucky to get away with anybody, but uh, definitely this was in the column for the Seminoles, in the victory of the Seminoles. Might have been good if they had, a, say, a scouting party go forward to see what was in front of them. Instead, they turned themselves into the scouting party to almost disastrous effect. Yeah, I would imagine they didn't expect to run into a village with two to 300 warriors that were fresh from fighting at Okeechobee. So, yeah, this was a surprise to them. They were completely unprepared for that. But they had a mission to complete, and they had to find out who was there, and technically they did. Also, you have to consider the inexperienced sailors that they had with them that had recently been taught to fire muskets. The soldiers' discipline remained intact, but the sailors are said to have broken run, and it was only by a miracle that they got these people back under control and were able to bring them back with them. They left five on the battlefield, of course. Well, these were gunboats. Weren't there any guns on it that they could fire on the Seminoles? No, they were in Mackinac boats. They were relatively small. They were specially built for the expedition down to uh, the Loxahatchee River. There wasn't a whole lot of fighting at that point. I think the soldiers and the sailors just wanted to get away from the shore as fast as possible. From the moment they passed off, they were probably rowing away as fast as they could. Where's General Jessup in all this? 
Jessup and his 600 dragoons and 500 Tennessee volunteers are at Fort Pierce at this time. So actually, Jessup is standing on the beach when Powell reaches the fort first thing the next morning and witnesses the wounded coming in. So Powell immediately sends a, a message to General Eustace at Fort Mellon, tells General Eustace to mobilize. They establish a depot called Camp Lloyd, a little bit east and of Lake Okeechobee, southeast of the Okeechobee battlefield. General Eustace begins his march with the artillery, the wagon train, the ambulances, and all the things that go along with the resistance. He also has 400 artillery men with him, most of those guys carrying muskets. However, they did have a 10-pound cannon, a 12-pound mountain howitzer, and Congreve rockets that they also brought along. Having identified the locale for a large element of Seminoles, General Jessup took the time to amass his force, and it was nine days later that they finally came to heads again. But General Jessup didn't just want them to come to heads. He felt this could be a decisive battle that would end the war. Yeah, absolutely. He completely believed that he would end the war at Loxahatchee. He, after the battle, actually makes a statement that the war is over, and we'll discuss that when we get into Camp Truce. General Jessup, he's expecting to do a battle down here, but I don't think he realizes exactly what he's getting into either. For the chroniclers out there, please give us the dates of the two battles. The first battle was January 15th, 1838. The second battle, the Battle of Loxahatchee River, was January 24th, 1838, approximately nine days to get here. In the January 15th instance, the force didn't necessarily set out to have a battle. Although they got one, the second battle, the 24th, General Jessup was ready for a fight. In the second battle, definitely. The first battle, the idea was to scout and report back. The second battle was to make contact and do battle and force them to surrender at the Loxahatchee. Why did General Jessup think this could be the decisive battle to end the war? I don't believe that the Army ever believed that the Seminoles would go into the Everglades. So they felt that they had them cornered here and that they could run them up effectively here at Loxahatchee. This was part of an overall strategy for employing the troops. He had already started his advance down where he had Hernandez was coming down the beach. He was coming down the center of the state. You have Zachary Taylor out there at Okeechobee and another group coming up from Fort Myers. So he mobilizes Fort Mellon group. That's quite an effort because obviously they were prepared to march because they had been on the move. But now you're talking about moving 1,600 men and eventually 35 Delawares from Taylor's force will join them. So 1,635 men down from Camp Lloyd, where their final departure is on the 17th of January. So now it takes five more days to get to the battle site. If the Army thought it was going to advance unopposed, it was sadly mistaken. The wily Seminoles had some tricks up their sleeves, and they employed it to delay and obstruct the Army's advance. The Seminoles would do a number of things to stop the advance of Jessup's troops. Of course, the first thing they did is simply by making their camps in such a hostile and watery stronghold that it was going to be difficult to get to them in the first place. That was the first thing. The Seminoles being greatly outnumbered, only two to 300 warriors against 1,600 soldiers and volunteers had to use, like in many battles that you see during the Seminole War, and especially at Okeechobee, use the terrain to help them thwart the attacks and the movements of this big force. So they effectively used the terrain to their advantage. And they have prepared the battlefield in advance by cutting down logs and forming barricades and breastworks. They notched the trees and they posted themselves up in the 
They were prepared for this large force to come in, but had they had any idea it was 1,600 men, we just don't know that. Okay, Glenn, nice job painting the narrative of the first battle of Loxahatchee. In this case, the second battle, how did it begin? Well, the battle began right about noon, they say, somewhere between noon and one o'clock. It was Captain Fowler's advance guard. They were about four to five miles in advance of the main column. They arrived at the Loxahatchee, probably about a half mile west of the park. Now, they take a different route than Powell came down, a completely different route. They take an inland route where Powell came down the coast by water. So they can't follow Powell's trail. That's impossible to move that big of a force. But what happens is, is they come into a high hammock, a relatively high hammock, considering they've been marching in water for the last five days. A young 15-year-old dragoon writes that they had entered about 30 yards when a war hoop was raised and they took a great deal of fire from the Seminoles. He talks about the fact that the dragoons immediately dismount and charge into the hammock where they're pushed back immediately. They charge again. And then he states, we found out we were quickly being surrounded and we flew to our horses to warn the army four miles behind. So that was the initial action. That was in a sense saying, we are here, we're ready to fight, come and get us. So for the second time, the army walks blindly into contact with the Seminole. But there was a big difference this time. Absolutely. I believe the army pretty much walked into this blind. The first contact was the advance guard. The Delawares, that the 35 Delawares that joined the column at Camp Lloyd from Taylor's command. As far as I know, we can find no record that they had reported finding the camp before the big force gets there. They probably had some sort of idea from Powell that there was a great deal of Seminoles posted and encamped at the Loxahatchee River, but no way to predict what's going to happen at this point. And also, the other thing is to keep in mind that the army itself was completely beat down. You have to consider that nearly a quarter of the force was barefoot and dressed in feed bags by the time they got here to Loxahatchee. The last five days of their journey down from Camp Lloyd, and especially when they crossed south of Indian Town, was in the water the entire way. So it didn't take long for those shoes to wear out and those uniforms to fall off their backs. There seems to be something incongruous in deploying that many dragoons, given the notoriously harsh Florida terrain for horses to operate in. But they did so anyway. Well, you know, the advantage of deploying such a large force of dragoons is for their speed and ability to move around the battle. However, once again, owing to the fact that the place was completely covered in water and the terrain was so thick and overgrown that it made difficulty using the horses in that environment. What the Seminoles effectively do to the 600 dragoons under the command of Colonel William Harney is they are posted in a large, large ancient cypress hammock. And as the dragoons come into the battlefield area, they open fire. So what happens is you have to understand that the battle comes in from the northwest, heading southeast. And the battle lines are a bit confusing because the battle objectives are to the south and to the east both. So there's two battlefield objectives. The Seminoles draw the dragoons into the cypress swamp first. Now, with those dragoons crashing into the cypress swamps, we hear that the horses are going down. They're breaking their ankles and legs on the cypress stumps. The the soldiers are uh, tumbling head over heels into the swamp. Their powder is wet, their flints wet, everything is wet. Right there at that point, the Seminoles have completely bogged down or trapped the dragoons in the cypress swamp. The horses are unable to move. They're sunk up to their saddle girths in the mud. 
And at this point, we believe that the Seminoles in the South Camp, which is the Native American camp, at that point, with the Dragoons trapped in the Cypress Swamp and hardly making any progress at all, we believe that the Seminoles went over to Indian Crossing at the East Camp, which is the African American camp, and helped defend that area there. The Dragoons were slowed, but it didn't result in uh, excessive casualties, correct? few casualties with the Dragoons. Most of their time was spent trying to get through this uh, impenetrable cypress swamp. I've asked this to other guests. What is a Dragoon? Sounds awfully European to me. And how is it not cavalry? A Dragoon, primarily in a nutshell, is a, a soldier that is trained as a horse soldier. They're carrying the sabers and the pistols like any cavalryman, but they're also trained at, to fight as infantry. And dragoons, in most cases, fight in this manner. In other words, they use their horses for transportation to the point of combat, dismount, and then fight on foot from that point on. So apparently, this is what happens to the dragoons. They eventually have to abandon their horses and go on foot to the cypress swamp. However, the difficulty is, is enormous. And at that point, the artillery has come up and they're throwing bucket loads of grape shot and, and canister shot and uh, congreve rockets into that south village with the intent of clearing the way for those dragoons to make their way to the village. At this point, Eustace's artillery has come up and they are firing to the south and they are firing to the east, trying to clear out the thick hammocks where the Seminoles are posted. After Harney, who was next? The next group that comes in are Major William Lauderdale's Tennessee Volunteers. Now, it's important to note we found no record of Lauderdale being present at the battle. It's highly probable that he was still sick. He was an elderly gentleman at the time. He was at Fort Mellon with a brain fever. He was not a well man, so his troops were probably under the command of somebody else at that particular point. We don't know exactly who, but uh, they would have been under the command of a different officer. They are immediately engaged by the Seminoles near in the hammock and pulled to the east towards a place that we call Indian Crossing. And these Tennessee volunteers are fired on heavy volleys from behind hidden breastworks from the trees, from the trunks where they have the trunks of the trees not to rest their rifles and the casualties start piling up for the Tennessee volunteers. At this point, General Jessup steps in to take overall charge. And what happens? Apparently, Jessup is at the south end of the battlefield in the Cypress Swamp, reports that his horse is sunk up to its belly, and he has to get another horse, reach the command at that particular point. Jessup learns that uh, the Tennessee volunteers are now static and not moving forward. They're being shot like fish in a barrel. They would take the heaviest casualties of the battle, like in many battles, the volunteers fared worse. In this case, they remained static. It wasn't that they were taking any less fire than the artillerymen or the Dragoons, it's just that they stopped in their tracks. Kind of like you hear at Dade, Jessup gets this word and furiously rides down to the Tennessee commander or the, a Tennessee officer. We don't know who that is. He has a quick debate with that officer. The officer refuses to charge the river because of their casualties. Jessup pulls a pistol, and this is where it gets really foggy right about here. It's alleged that Jessup pulls out a pistol, places it to the Tennessee volunteer officer's head, and threatens him with execution if he does not immediately bring his men up to the river. Well, you know, we don't know the reason why Jessup backed down from that challenge, possibly because these Tennessee boys were Andrew Jackson's buddies. I may have had something to do with it, but we don't know why he backed down. He removes a second pistol from a second holster, 
And if you can only imagine the confusion of the troops that watching their commanding general at this point race towards the river's edge with both pistols in his hands. And as he turns around to uh, see if the troops have followed him to the river, he is struck in the left cheek by a seminal musket ball. His spectacles are broken. He calmly stoops down in the mud, picks up the pieces of his spectacles, and returns to the lines for aid. You've said things got murky at this point. Why do you say that? Well, you know, the battle's a little sketchy at this point. Thurgeon Mott writes that there was a charge. We don't think it was the Tennessee Volunteers. But remember, between the Tennessee Volunteers and uh, the Dragoons, we have 400 artillery, most of them acting as infantrymen. So we have this force to the middle. Maybe we'll be able to clear this up in the future, but we've been able to determine if that charge was made by the artillery or the dragoons. This charge was made about two hours into the battle and uh, writes that the soldiers charged into the river and immediately went up over their heads, rendering their weapons useless as seminal balls flew all about them. Now, why they didn't take more casualties, there were only two artillery men killed on the battlefield during the Battle of Loxahatchee River, we don't know. But simultaneously at this point, Colonel Harney's dragoons on the south end of the battlefield have managed to negotiate the Cypher Swamp and now have crossed the river into the South Seminole camp and have posted themselves on the far western or left flank of the Seminoles. At this point, the Seminoles have had two and a half hours to evacuate their non-combatants to relative safety. There's not a whole lot of fighting goes on. Surgeon Mott talks about how the battle abruptly ends and they talk about the extreme noise during the battle and then how deafening quiet it was suddenly. It's just like somebody flipped the light switch and turned the lights off. That's how quickly the battle ended. Were the Seminoles forced from the field or withdrew on their own accord? Yeah, that was with the Seminoles withdrawing. It's important to note that only one Seminole uh, killed in action was found on the battlefield. And to the best of our knowledge, there's no documentation stating that anyone other than the squaw, and I apologize for referring to her as that, but that's the only name that we have for her. The only uh, seminal they captured that week or during those two battles is that woman that Pal grabbed at the onset of the Pal expedition. So no Seminoles are captured, just one killed to the best of our knowledge during the battle. We got 30 wounded soldiers and volunteers. We, uh, depending on whose count you look at, anywhere from 9 to 11 killed in action as far as total people go and 30 wounded. That's a lot of effort for a little payoff for the U.S. Army. A lot of people go, gosh, nothing compared to a Civil War battle, but we've had Vietnam veterans come out and say, listen, you could have been telling my story, but they talk about how casualties, even seven, eight, nine casualties is a great deal of casualties for one unit. The biggest thing that the Seminoles used to their advantage probably was the terrain. It definitely slowed down the advance of the soldiers, the volunteers, made it hard for the artillery to engage the Seminoles. It was a very difficult battle. They were fighting the terrain just as much as they were fighting the Seminole forces on the Loxahatchee. Okay, Glenn, scorekeeper, please give us the tally. Two intense battles, who won? We all have different opinions. Obviously, the first battle is a temporary tactical win for the Seminoles because obviously they have to know that American forces will return. They have nine days to prepare their camps, the defense for their camps. Temporarily, it was a tactical battle. It gave them an edge at the Battle of Loxahatchee nine days later. The same thing with the Battle of Loxahatchee, even though the Seminoles withdraw, 
it is the army that takes the beating. Their casualties with their injuries. There were snake bites and there were plenty of sick soldiers as well as the wounded. When you look at everybody that's injured in, in the battle, other than being in combat injuries, you have quite a few of troops that are in bad shape. Temporarily, maybe Loxahatchee was a tactical victory. By numbers, you know, of killed and wounded, they definitely carried the day that day. They accomplished their objective by evacuating maybe about four or 500 non-combatants that were at that village. In the long run, the army would catch up to them, and that's a different story. It's a temporary victory for the Seminoles. It gives them the jump to escape. Both groups of Seminoles used the Loxahatchee River to escape by, I guess that was their fastest avenue of retreat. The group from the east camp. They fled to the north and then out to what we call the Hungry Land now, where we have the story of the Hungry Land woman. And then we have the south camp, the Seminole camp, fleeing towards the south. And they will establish their camp about 20 miles south. And eventually the U.S. forces will track them to that camp. This seems about the right time to bring up what you alluded to earlier, Glenn, which is this camp truce. What was this? Okay, well, we call that Camp Camp Truce. That's an interesting little bit of this story. Soldiers eventually back in the field after spending quite a few days at Fort Jupiter waiting for resupply. The Army's on the move again. The Delaware Scouts and now a, a company of Shawnee Indian have tracked the Seminoles down to a play near the Wellington area, which is about 20 miles south of Jupiter. They draw up in a line of battle, and as they're getting ready for battle, an emissary approaches and talks to Jessup and says, we want to talk about making peace here at this place. The general sends a message back to come on out that he'll talk to the Seminoles. Subchiefs Tuskegee and Halakajo appear, make a long story short, they make a deal to have their people come in to Fort Jupiter. Once again, Jessup is telling them that the war is over. It's safe to come in, come into Fort Jupiter and reside there with us and we'll wait for permission from Washington City to allow you to stay. So it wasn't a really popular decision with a lot of his troops, but Jessup did make a deal with the Seminoles that they could stay in Florida told them that the war was over. So over the next uh, month and a half, approximately 700 Seminoles would come into Fort Jupiter, camp there awaiting word from Washington City. Well, now that is a significant development as a result of the battle. What was this Fort Jupiter? Fort Jupiter was established on the 26th of January. They had a five-mile march back to Powell's Landing Point where they established Fort Jupiter. So there was no Fort Jupiter at the time of the battle. Fort Jupiter was established two days afterwards. Okay, and Camp Truce? Camp Truce was temporary camp. It was the camp where the deal was made for the Seminoles to return to Jupiter. So it was a temporary camp. They may have spent the night there, but uh, before long, they were on their way back to Jupiter to await the arrival of the Seminoles. However, not everybody, not all the Seminoles were happy about this idea. So there were a number of Seminoles that refused to come in. And of course, that was the responsibility of the Delaware Scouts and the Shawnee Scouts to bring those Seminoles in. So even though the war was over and we were technically at peace now, according to Jessup, they were still being arrested as fugitives if they were caught hiding out instead of coming into the fort. How decisive then were the battles for the removal effort? It was decisive to the removal efforts in the long run. After Camp Truce and after the Seminoles return to Fort Jupiter, then we have an event that occurs on March 20th, 1838. 
This action that happens at Fort Jupiter early in the morning at dawn is what we call the big grab. Now, the big grab was that General Jessup had been capturing leaders under a white flag of truce. And these Seminoles on that particular day, days were camped under a white flag of truce at Fort Jupiter as well. On that morning of March 20th, 1838, after the Seminoles returned, Jessup has General Gaines surround the camp and at dawn forces the surrender of the entire camp. We have a roster here, an official roster from the National Archives that states that 696 Seminoles and slaves were captured at the fort. As far as we know, this was the biggest capture under a white flag of truce in American history that occurs here on March 20th, 1838. Almost immediately, the African-American, the freedmen, the Black Seminoles, if you want to call them by that name, they're immediately separated from the rest of the population. A group of over 100 is immediately taken out to Fort McRae. For what reason, we don't know, but we do know that they were kept there for quite some time, and most of them ended up escaping and returning to the wilderness. I don't really understand the Seminoles coming into this camp. They've been told the war is over. They say, come on in to the fort. We'll wait for our answer from Washington, D.C., which they call Washington City at the time. They come back to the fort to await approval, thinking that the war is indeed going to be over. The approval is denied, and that's what happens on March 15th. Jessup gets the word back that the Seminoles must go to the West. And that accounts for the big grab. He instructs the army to capture the Seminoles on the 20th of March under the white flag of truce and take them prisoner. They're immediately moved. He disarms them. He takes their horses and their cattle. The Seminole woman that was captured at the first battle, the Battle of Jupiter Inlet, she was in the process of uh, taking care of a large herd of horses and cattle when Powell came upon her. They had quite a bit of livestock there. So the army immediately seized their luck and all their weapons and the things that they had with them at the fort. They immediately moved him inside the fort between the stockade and the dragoon camp. At this point, the dragoons were armed with repeating rifles that were tested at Fort Jupiter by Samuel Cole, and they were detained there. And we have the grim evidence of that recovered at the Fort Jupiter site. We have many examples of shackles, handcuffs, and other types of uh, restraints that they used to restrain the Seminole Indians after the big grab. Well, now, that doesn't seem very sporting of the Army. No, it wasn't very sporting. It caused a great deal of anger to the American population, as most of us know. We now call the Seminole Indian War our first Vietnam. This was an unpopular war. That's not news to anyone that has heard about this war. But it causes a great deal of difficulty for the soldiers. That's the way it is. There is no glory here at Jupiter. There is no happy endings for anybody. This is a very bad time for Seminole and soldiers alike. The fact that they detained them was a little bit cowardly and dastardly, to say the least. And they did go back on their word. The evidence points to the fact that when General Jessup made his deal at Camp Truce, that he was sincere about it. And as I kind of touched on, uh, a lot of the officers were not really happy with that. But of course, they're in the military. They're going to follow orders. It was a very, very sad chapter in the history here of Jupiter. And the fate of those Seminoles who'd been detained? Well, the safest thing to say is all the Seminoles were removed from Fort Jupiter. In the days shortly after the big grab at Fort Jupiter, Immediately, the Army started uh, breaking the Seminole residents at the fort into smaller groups. One group went out the battlefield trail that Jessup and Powell used to get to the Loxahatchee River battlefield, and then on out to Indian Town and across to Fort Brook and then onto Edgemont Key. 
The second group went down what we call military trail, which was built by Major William Lauderdale and a Lieutenant Robert Anderson of the United States Army Regulars. That group went south to Miami, to Fort Dallas, to Key Biscayne, and they were put on a steamer. The name was Boatwell, and they were taken to the Western Territories in that manner by boats. They split the group. One group went west by foot. The other group made the journey by boat. No shots were fired. They took the Seminoles by surprise. Generally, after a day of hunting for the Seminoles and playing games, the relationship between the soldiers and the Seminoles at Fort Jupiter became quite friendly over the days between the battle and the big grab. It was not a good thing. And Why did Jessup do the big grab? One of the reasons that Jessup decided to do the big grab in secret was because he was afraid that some of the soldiers had become so close to some of the Seminole residents there at the fort that they were afraid that the soldiers would tip off the Seminoles that they were going to be captured on the 20th. It was even kept secret from the soldiers. Interestingly enough, the group that had the worst time there were the Tennessee Volunteers, and that was over the incident with General Jessup at the river. Like a bad college roommate, eventually we believe there's no record of this, but they were asked to move out and we found their camp about one mile due west of Fort Jupiter. We do know for a fact that the violence became so widespread and so crazy among the volunteers versus the regular soldiers that they were eventually moved from the fort. Then what happened? Not all the Seminoles turned themselves in. Reports from New Rivers begin to come in. Sam Jones and his Miccosukees and some of the Seminoles from Okeechobee and probably from Loxahatchee have now taken refuge down there on the New River. Major William Lauderdale is ordered to cut a trail from Fort Jupiter to New River. We call that uh, trail military trail today. He constructs that trail down to New River, and the war begins moving towards the south. So at the moment, Fort Jupiter is the seat of war for the Seminole Indian conflict. However, that will only remain there for maybe another two or three weeks. At this time, the troops are being redeployed. Some are being redeployed to Fort Van Swearingen. Some are heading for New River. Some are actually heading back north because of reports of Seminole activity picking up to the north of the battlefield. They're sent back in the direction of Fort Mellons. In a couple of days, the troops are being redispersed to other points in Florida and hopefully finding and engaging the Seminoles. Jessup ordered these troops to go out, redeployed these troops, but Sam Jones wasn't going to come in regardless of what anybody said. Jessup knew that he still had fugitives out there that were ready to fight, and that was his next objective, was to bring this more radical group of Miccosukees and Seminole Indians to bay. That was his major objective after the Battle of Loxahatchee River. But within a, about a month, the fort would really kind of become quite useless. The war had moved on. Soon afterwards, the fort would be decommissioned. It would be open for a short time in uh, 1841 with reports of Sam Jones being at the Loxahatchee River. There were two small engagements in the West Palm Beach area, Chachi's Village and Chachi's Hunting Camp, where a number of Seminoles were killed in that particular battle, and I think 57 Seminoles were caught, caught there at those camps and taken to Fort Jupiter, and they were quickly moved out to the Western Territories as well. General Jessup didn't stay around much longer after this, did he? That's correct. After this, General Jessup, he's been doing this since 1836, and I think he's pretty much had it. I'm sure he's completely frustrated. He's probably quite embittered over his failed peace seal. General Jessup, at this point, is starting to phase out, is beginning to phase out, and it's not long before Zachary Taylor will be named the new commander of the forces in Florida. What's the effect, then, of these battles? Well, the direct effect is this. 
what was thought to be the last battle, which was actually stated to be the last battle by General Jessup, directly led to the war continuing for 20 long more years until 1858. Now, you know, I know historians are divided. Was this one continuous long war for 41 years or was this three separate wars? Well, in any case, depending on what opinion you have, the war did, troubles did continue till 1858. So it was because of this action here, it gave the Seminoles resolve to fight harder and not to trust the white soldiers any further after the betrayal at Loxahatchee River. In past years, you've commemorated the second battle of Loxahatchee River. What are you planning this year? We have a scaled down event. Unfortunately, the COVID here in Palm Beach County is still raising its heads. Have a living history event going on. We'll have a soldier's camp and we'll have some Seminole reenactors. And uh, Daniel Tommy is coming up with his canoes from the Seminole tribe. It'll be an informal living history event. No battle this year. We'll be demonstrating the howitzer, and uh, it'll just be a nice day. It's a free event. It's not really being advertised. The county doesn't want a, a crowd there, so it's just whoever happens to stumble into us can come on in. The one thought I have, and I know you'll cover this with Dick Kazmar, is one of the things that we are celebrating at this particular point in time and that we will celebrate in April 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at the Seminole War Convocation is bringing the Seminole Nation delegation in from Oklahoma. And this will be their first official return to the Loxahatchee River in 184 years. We're quite excited about the Seminole Nation's return to the Loxahatchee River. They will be speaking and at the convocations, and we hope uh, we get a big crowd out there to come and meet them. The general public is able to sign up and come out for the three days or for whatever day they want. The last day will be the big day that we have the Seminole Color Guard, and that will be at the battlefield, and we're preparing a little ceremony for that that it's sure to be breathtaking as uh, these nation members walk this battlefield that they fought so hard and for and unfortunately were moved to the Western territories afterwards. So it'll be emotional, it'll be exciting, and, and everything in between. We're really looking forward to their return, and I'm sure Dick has a lot more to say on that. Glenn Bagels, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thank you. It's been a privilege to do this. We're like the stepchildren down here. We're remote from the rest of the community. So thank you very much for letting us talk a little bit about the battle. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.